veo. ¿Qué eres? Una cosita. ¿Qué cosita es? Está todo tal como lo dejó el anterior propietario. Ya verás qué felices vamos a ser aquí. ¿Por qué tengo que dormir yo con el abuelo? aquí si en esta casa ya vive alguien. En esa casa pasan cosas. ¿Qué cosas? Tienen goteras. Amparo, ayúdame. Vivo en la calle Manuela Malaseña 32. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Fresh Cuts. I'm Mike, and with me tonight, it's Mr. Venom. How are you doing? Bienvenidos, hermanos y hermanas. Yes, greetings and salutations, my Spanish horror-loving friends. How's everyone doing? Mike, I am doing great. How are you doing? I am doing well, um, getting quickly adjusted to the fact that it's already dark when we're recording. It's, it's that time of the year. <laughs> Post-Halloween, we are officially into November, so the year is quickly coming to an end. Uh-huh. Not too right. soon. And <laughs> yeah, really, 2020. Yeah, I'm ready to take like a 60-day nap and just sleep through the rest of 2020. I don't think I need to experience any more of this. Well, the big event's coming tomorrow for anyone unsure of when we're recording tomorrow's for our American listeners, which I assume most are, uh, the elections tomorrow. So regardless of where you fall, it's a big one. So um, joining us as well should be familiar by now with this guy, Don and Ellie. How you doing, Don? Hola, gracias por invitarme al programa. Es genial estar aquí. Not bad. Eh? <laughs> Vivir cerca de Los Angeles sorprendes algunas cosas. Now you're reaching. <laughs> yeah, no, that's all Google Translate. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, the second part was you live near Los Angeles, you learn a few things. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure Venom knows that, but uh, just to fill everybody in on where that was and uh, keeping the tradition at the tradition going of uh, greeting everyone in the local language because this is the first Spanish horror film we've covered so there we go <laughs> all right well if that hasn't tipped you off to what we were covering we we mentioned at the end of the last show um, but in case you had not listened to that episode yet Venom what are we covering I pre I'm just kicking it to you because you'll pronounce it much better than me. <laughs> um this uh, this week we are taking a look at the new Spanish language horror film uh, coming to us from Shudder, and the title is Thirty Two Malasaña Street. So it's kind of a weird combination of English and Spanish because um, Malasaña, for those who don't know, in Spanish means bad health or poor health. 
Uh, but then they end it with street, which isn't really an idiom that Spanish speakers really use. So, yeah, we got a little bit of Spanglish here for the title of our movie, but it's cool. <laughs> That's yeah, because the, they would use they would use their own translation if it was an actual street, right? Yeah, calle. It would be, uh, and plus it would be backwards, so it would be. Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah. So instead of thirty-two Malasaña Street, it would be Calle de Malasaña Trentidós. Yeah, that's right. Because I know that they reverse it when they do um, street names. Yeah, and then the, the Spanish title of this movie is also Malasaña Trentidós or Malasaña Thirty-Two. They don't even use the word street in the Spanish version, so it's kind of implied. Because uh, I, I was looking up uh, a little bit of history on the word. Obviously, the literal translation of the word is bad health or poor health. But there's also a region of Madrid, Spain, actually called Malasaña. And it's it's kind of like the lower income area of Madrid. So, again, kind of fits our movie. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we got a whole bunch of education in that uh, opening introduction. <laughs> so, uh, synopsis... A family moving to a new house to live the dream of the big city. A house where dreams turn in nightmares. Into, I'm assuming I meant to say into nightmares. Um, yeah. Not so much a synopsis, more like a, a more like two taglines. Yeah, kind of, yeah. But anyway, it's, it's more like a tagline. I mean, but... Yeah, it spares any spoilers, so that's good yes. enough, I guess. It's ambiguous um, enough that I right. can accept it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, so general thoughts. Let's go, as we always do, to Venom first. All right, well, overall, I mean, as usual, you know, this is Spanish horror. Everyone who knows, I am a Spaniard, 100%. So, you know, any horror that comes out of Spain is always a big treat for me. Obviously, they're not always home runs, but, you know, they can't all be wreck. But at the same time, we've had some really good ones over the last few years. A lot of them from like South and Central America as far as Spanish language movies, but as far as stuff coming directly from Spain, you know, we've only had a couple. Um, but yeah, this one, I like this movie a lot. This is a slow, uh, once again, it's a slow burn. It's going to be a very divisive film. A lot of horror fans are probably not going to be into this. Um, Aside from having to read subtitles, which I actually did not have to read subtitles uh, because this movie, since it is out of Spain, they are speaking Castilian Spanish, which is the Spanish that I speak, as opposed to Latin Spanish, which is what, you know, uh, Latinos and people in Central America speak. So, yeah, I was able to watch this without subtitles and really, really enjoyed it. Thought the performances were really good. I love the Spanish, uh, the kind of classic Spanish um, soundtrack score. I loved some of the songs in here, even though, and I don't know if you guys got this, but when the opening song was playing during the opening credits, it reminded me of a giallo. Like, I literally thought, I'm like, wow, this sounds like a giallo from the mid-70s, you know, with this kind of style of, like... And and the movie is set in 1972, so again, that makes sense, that it's kind of traditional music from that time period, but it's amazing how similar, like, Spanish and Italian music, uh, you know, especially, like, cinematic score stuff kind of started to sound similar there in the 70s. Obviously, you know, as horror fans, we're much more averse with Italian uh, than Spanish cinema as far as the 70s go, but, um, yeah, I I found it, and it was refreshing, too. I kind of liked it, knowing I'm watching a Spanish movie, but then watching the opening credits, and it felt kind of like a giallo. I thought that was really cool. Um... You know, once again, we've got some great uh, creature work from Javier Botet. 
um, who is, of course, the number two creature actor in the world. I got to give it to my buddy Doug, uh, Doug Jones. But yeah, I mean, Javier definitely plays a lot of the creepier creatures. He does the, you know, body contortion stuff really well. Um, blah, blah, blah. Usually when there's no dialogue involved, Javier generally will take those roles, whereas Doug Jones is generally more about speaking roles. But um, it was it was pretty cool kind of seeing Javier Potet as, a, as an actor first. Did you guys notice that the realtor, that's Javier. That that's was? Creature. I yeah, the, thought he looked mm, familiar. Yeah, the tall, skinny realtor. realtor. That was I Javier thought, Botet. Yeah, I who thought also he looked played familiar. The ghost. I thought yeah, he looked yeah. familiar, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he had a fake mustache on. I recognize him more without the facial hair, but I mean, when, when you're like six foot seven and like 170 pounds, yeah, you stick out. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, like I said, uh, this movie isn't perfect by any stretch. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of trying to avoid saying that I loved the movie. I really enjoyed it. I had a really good time with it. It is a slow burn. It is your traditional haunted house story, though there is a little bit more of a twist with the motivations of the spirit in this movie, which we'll get in. Maybe not the motivations, but the the reason for the haunting, if you will. So I kind of like that they kind of brought some social issues from the modern day into a movie set in 1972. Uh, so I thought that was really cool. But ultimately, like the haunting, you know, the set pieces, it's nothing we haven't seen before. A lot of spooky sound effects, you know, people walking in the background, bumps and you know, children laughing and blah, blah, blah. I mean, as far as the actual horror elements of this movie, there's nothing really all that original, but it's still a solid film, to borrow a, uh, a term from Mike. A very solid movie. I really enjoyed it. We'll definitely revisit it. Um, it's got some storytelling issues, um, which I'll go into in the spoiler section, but overall, yeah, I really enjoyed this one. Definitely not going to sniff my top 10 for 2020, but a, a really good film that I had a good time watching. And for a movie that's over 100 minutes, um, you know, it didn't feel like it to me. I was engaged the entire time. I can't really say that there were... I mean, because I know the term slow is um, kind of... It's a subjective term. You know, what's slow to me might not be slow to someone else and vice versa. So despite the pacing of this movie being a little, a little bit on the slower side, I was never bored. I was never like twiddling my thumbs or looking at my phone i didn't pick up my phone once so you know that that says something right there um so yeah overall really enjoyed this one not a top movie of the year but really really good well worth watching um i would give this a high recommend to anyone who enjoys haunted house stories and of course spanish uh, horror cinema in general that's it from me mike all right, uh, Don. What did you think generally of this one? Um, I'm just a tick below Venom. Um, I do agree with a lot of what he said. I do think that those scares are there. I do think that the atmosphere is compelling. The storyline, while not the greatest or most original, is good for what this is. Um, I, I was probably a tad bit more t put off by the pacing of it, and I. I used a term in my review where I said it's measured. And I think that's probably a bit more accurate because 
it, it feels it feels logical and it doesn't really feel like there's outside of maybe one or two scenes like there's anything like extraneous that doesn't need to be there it just so happens that it's a story that manages to go on for an hour and what an hour and 45 minutes i think it was like an hour and maybe 40 something minutes with credits so like yeah, an hour and 45 you're right. mm-hmm. yeah yeah about that yeah, so it's like an hour and 45 minutes. Like like I said, two or three, a couple scenes that didn't need to be there that aren't really that long, but overall it's just a story that happens to be told in that kind of a frame, so it lasts for an hour and 45 minutes. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's great. Um, I'd probably use the term, like you said, decent. <laughs> and, you know, like that's pretty much where I fall with it. It's, you know... It falls more in line, I think, with um, like Terrified or Veronica, which are like the big modern, you know, Spanish language horror films. This is probably a notch or two below those. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like you said, not necessarily the greatest, um, a worthwhile time. Uh, there's some scenes in here that are really good and really enjoyable. Um, I may have been, you know, just a touch bit a touch more turned off by the flaws and the pacing than he, than Venom was. But um, yeah, I'm pretty much just like a notch or two, two below him. So worth a watch, enjoyable, but not necessarily, you know, like if you're looking for potential top 10 candidates, this really isn't one to look at, but if you just want a solid entry to, you know, revisit to visit and spend some time with, you can do far worse than this one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, as far as myself, yeah, I well, I'm going to say I had a good time with this one. I was a little worried, like when we first start getting like our scares, the way it's playing out. I was like, okay, are we going to just get like you know your run of the mill kind of haunted house or apartment complex or whatever? Um, but as it went on and as we got more developments in the actual story and the characters and everything going on, and especially once we hit the third act when um, we get a little... There's a certain character that's introduced I don't want to give, give away too much, but when that character kind of gets their kind of time to shine in the movie, I think like that whole sequence was very well done. And I think the movie ends... The third act, to me, really is what uh, got me to get way on board with the movie. I was already fine with it up to then. I, I agree it's a slow burn. And I think, you know, through the first two acts, you, a lot of viewers are going to be like, you know, this isn't bad, but been here, done that. And I think um, once uh, we get reveals and twists um, and all that stuff, that's where I thought the movie kind of stood out i would agree that um veronica and terrified i would still put above this i mean those were just really really well done kind of in like that next class above this one but you know that's not really a knock on this just just to say it's not as good as those but i still thought it was a good movie had a fun time with it and um yeah that's pretty much it for general thoughts it's another one where you know you can't it's hard to get too much into the story without spoiling things so i will just say i'm probably right there with the both of you guys um 
saying it it was good, had a good time with it. And so mm-hmm. uh, I guess I'll kick it back to Venom in case we have anything before spoilers. I mean, you know, obviously being a Spanish language film, it's going to be compared to some of the best ones out there. And ultimately, Terrified is on a whole other level, in my opinion. I even hold that above Veronica. Like, Terrified, to me, is a 10 out of 10. But it's so much more because of just, you know, it's partially an It's kind of an anthology, but it all takes place in the same neighborhood. Just some of the set pieces. I mean, the opening set piece in Terrified, to this day, haunts me. I'm not fucking joking you. I, I, I just think about that scene in the shower, and I'm just like... I, you know, I felt so bad for the husband in that scene. I almost teared up because it's a, it's a horrifying scene that's very scary. But as a married man who's very in love with his wife, watching that scene and watching the helplessness of the husband in his eyes while his wife is getting just decimated by an invisible, you know, uh, antagonist, it, it was just heartbreaking to me. So, yeah, Terrified is on a whole nother level. Uh, Veronica, I would probably hold above uh, Malasanya Street as well. But, again, it's more because of the level of action. Like, there's not a whole lot of horror set pieces in this movie. And the ones that we do get, as Don has mentioned, you know, nothing we haven't really seen before. You know, it's kind of the same haunted house tropes that we always get. New family moves into a house. Stuff starts out slowly and then ramps up until that final evening when... You know, shit hits the fan, blah, blah, blah. It's very Amityville horror in that sense. Um, But just, well, I can't even say it's a modern telling because technically this is right around the same time the Amityville horror occurred, too, early to mid-70s. So, Um, But, yeah, this movie, I mean, I watched it twice. I watched it yesterday, and then I watched it again today after work, and I'm really digging the performances. I love all the performances in this movie. Um, the, The kids do a great job. Well, there's one young kid, you know, they claim he's five years old. He looks closer to eight or nine, but, you know, he's five in the movie. I think the mom and dad are great as a broken uh, couple with an odd past that doesn't get revealed to us until the end, which, you know, I was I was happy about that. I'm glad they didn't go in the direction I thought they were going in. Um, There's a movie that has a very similar twist in it um, that has an American remake. We'll talk about that during the spoiler section, because if I say it here, it gives away, you know, a little bit of a plot point here in Malasanya Street, but, um, I, yeah, I, I did enjoy this movie a lot. I, I, the scenes where there's no actual scary things going on, I thought were all really well done, good cinematography, good editing. I, I already mentioned how much I like the score, the really good direction, um, by our director whose name escapes me right now, and that is Albert Pinto is the director. Um, and a really good cast, you know. Um, I mean, nobody that any of us as American horror film viewers would really recognize by name other than Javier Botet. But, um, you know, obviously it's still, you know, like I said, it's a solid haunted house movie, good dynamic. And, and at, the, at the core, every haunted house movie really is a family drama. And this one is no different. We get some great family drama aside from the haunting stuff that's going on. You know, mom and dad in the city for the first time trying to both are working in new career fields that they've never worked in. You know, there's a lot of family drama going on here aside from, you know, all the supernatural 
Bible stuff. So when you put those two together, you know, I mean, I'm not going to call this the Spanish poltergeist by any stretch of the imagination, but it's it's a movie that I would hold in the same kind of regard. It's, um, you know, the subtle set pieces that are in there, to me, were very effective. I wasn't on the edge of my seat the whole movie by any stretch, but... Um, you know, what little scares they gave us were solid. Not a whole lot of jump scares, which I can always appreciate. Definitely going more for tension and tone as opposed to just, you know, startling me to death. So, yeah, solid film. Like I said, I mean, you know, we're we're talking it up a lot. And I will fully 100% admit that I am biased. Being a Spaniard, when I see a Spanish horror film show up on, you know, Shudder in October, of course, it piques my interest instantly. And maybe I'm a little bit more forgiving of the shortcomings of a Spanish horror film, though I have been harsh on some in the past. So I'd like to think that I'm fairly unbiased. But at the same time, I obviously like this movie a lot more than maybe not a lot more, but a little bit more than Mike and Don. Um so it's going to sound like I'm really, really talking it up like it is, you know, the second coming of Terrified, but it's definitely not. Um, just a solid little movie that I, I think most horror fans should check out if you can handle subtitles or if you, you know, if you're from Spain like me, you don't need your subtitles at all. So um, I think that's it for me for spoiler free. Uh, Don, Mike, anything else to add before we go into the walkthrough? Um, not really. My, most of my stuff would be in the walkthrough itself, so... Cool. Alright. Um, I, I don't think so, either. Cool. I mean, I'm trying to go down the list of, like, characters to see... I mean, I, I thought ever I thought all the cast did really well. I mean, I guess I could just add that in. I, mm-hmm. I was very convinced by everyone's role. There are, like, you know some tropes like as like you know the older members of the family seem to be like oh they have like the sense of things you know and so there's a few trope things in there but they didn't really bother me i mean and overall i just thought the cast did really well yeah even the non-speaking role there's one girl in this movie who is bound in a wheelchair uh, she doesn't have any actual lines, um, and even her performance I thought was great. As you know, once you know, once the shit hits the fan and she takes her part in this whole big story, I, I thought it was great. So yeah, uh, uh, yeah, same thing with uh, with you, Mike. With me, Mike. I, like I said, these performances are all very compelling. Um, even the older brother, which in a lot of movies, that's the role that would really get me. That would really be like, oh, I hate this fucking kid. But nope, even Pepe, I thought, did a great job. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that the fact that the filmmakers chose to make him, how can I put this delicately, a little slower, maybe, in the head. I mean, he's, he's not a mental deficient by any stretch, but he's obviously a little bit slower. The family cuts him a little bit more slack. You notice throughout the movie that... You know, uh, Pepe, the older brother, doesn't have as many responsibilities as Amparo, uh, our main uh, protagonist, the teenage daughter. So um, but even that choice, I like I I agreed with it because they didn't go over the top with it, but it was subtle enough that it worked for the film, especially the way that the ghost decided to go after Pepe. It totally, totally worked with his, you know, maybe slower mental capacity, you know, so. Uh, another, like I said, just a really cool filmmaking choice there. Um, so yeah, all right. If we are done with non-spoilers, let's get into it. Thirty-two Malasanya Street. 
All right. Our movie opens up with a couple of boys, young boys, um, obviously brothers, uh, you know, one a little bit younger than the other. Uh, they're arguing over a marble, apparently. As I like, I mentioned earlier, um, Malasaña in Madrid is kind of a lower income uh, neighborhood, so you know you can kind of tell that all the people living in this building don't come from money. So, like I said, the movie opens in 1972. We have these two boys uh, leaving their apartment, arguing over a marble. Eventually, they drop the marble, which falls down uh, a flight of stairs to the next level down. It fall the marble ends up falling in front of the door to 3B, apartment 3B. And that apartment, um, as we can see from the shots that we get, is uh, dwelled by an older woman living by herself. Uh, we don't really get her name early on. We just hear the boys say, Mom told us to stay away from the old lady's door or whatever. Um, but this kid, man, how brave was this kid for a fucking marble? <laughs> I'm pretty sure hmm. most kids would just say, fuck it, it's a marble. Like, yeah, it was, yeah I was that's... thinking that, too. <laughs> like, it's not even the slammer. It was literally just a standard marble. So I'm like, okay, I don't know how expensive that could be, but whatever. So uh, it's the younger brother of the two who goes after the marble. Of course, the marble rolls right in front of uh, the door, 3B. Um, the, um, the older brother gets the younger brother's attention, telling him, just leave it, let's go. And when the younger brother looks back down, the marble is gone. He looks under the door, and it looks like the marble rolled into the old woman's apartment. Um, and then, but then the door is open. Um, I, I'm not sure if the boy opens the door or if the door supernaturally opens on its own. They don't really show us specifically. So I'm just going to say, you know, the door opened. Uh, the boy steps into the apartment and he sees the marble about halfway up the hallway. So he decides to, you know, go and grab it. And But once again, his brother distracts him long enough that he looks away from the marble. And when he looks back again, the marble is gone. Uh, he notices that the marble is now in the back room of the apartment, which is where the old woman is sitting on a rocking chair. Uh, don't know if she's awake, alive. You know, she's literally just sitting there motionless. Um, so I'm sure everybody at this point knows what's coming. As the boy uh, approaches the marble, he bends down to grab it. The old woman kind of shocks herself into consciousness. And I don't know if it was a purposeful attempt at the old woman to scare the child. I think she just kind of came out of it and she falls off the chair and we learn later that she dies in that apartment by herself. So uh, we then get the opening credits, which, like I said, have a great little uh, 70s pop Spanish song playing, which gives it a giallo feel, which I'm always on board for. And then after the credits, uh, we are now in 1976. We have a four-year time jump. And now uh, we meet, uh, what was there? Oh, we, ne we never actually get the last name of the family. That's funny. So uh, we basically meet a family, um, a couple, you know, a mother and a father with three kids. The uh, oldest child is a daughter. Uh, the middle child is uh, a boy. We already mentioned him, Pepe, the older brother. And then the younger brother, whose name is, oh, oh Rafael. Rafa. They were calling him Rafa uh, throughout the movie. So Rafael, yeah. So the kids are Amparo, which is the the, uh, the oldest daughter, Pepe, uh, the middle child boy, and Rafael, the five-year-old boy. And then the parents are uh, Manolo, 
is the dad and Candela is the mother. I'm sure no one's going to remember that, least of all me, so I don't even know why I'm going over it, but there it is. So, uh, basically the family moves into a, a new apartment building right in uh, Madrid, in the Malasaña section of Madrid. And who is their realtor but Javier Botet himself. Yes, he plays... He got a chance, as I mentioned in the spoiler-free section, he gets a chance to actually uh, play a human role and actually have a good amount of dialogue for him. Uh, he is in the majority of the, um, not the opening scene, but the first scene with the family in 1976. Um, it looks like they, uh, it looks like the dad maybe took a trip out to Madrid to see the apartment and then agreed to everything. This is the first time that, like, mom and the rest of the family were seeing the apartment. So basically... Um, Javier Botet, the realtor, uh, you know, lets dad know the deal on the mortgage and the neighborhood and blah, 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 and hands them the keys and they are moved into their house. Um, so on the first night, you know, we, we, it, we get various scenes of just cute interactions, family interactions. Um, we can tell right away that the, that the, the daughter, the oldest daughter, the only daughter, is kind of the caretaker of the family. She's seen taking care of the youngest boy, Manolo. She's seen making sure that Pepe gets up in the morning and that, you know, he's able to feed himself, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, so, you know, with mom and dad both working, she's kind of the mom by proxy, if you will. So we get various scenes of, like, you know, her giving her little brother a bath, brushing his hair, you know, getting him ready for bed, they get into a conversation because uh, the little boy, unfortunately, has to share a room with his grandfather, who is on a some kind of respirator, a rather loud respirator that has to be on all night. The boy is obviously not happy with that, but, you know, mom says, you know, we got to do what we got to do. Um, you can't stay with your sister anymore because she's a grown woman now, and it would be weird, blah, blah, blah. So on the very first night, that the family is in the house right after um, Ampara gives um, Rafa his bath for the evening. Um, she's distracted by the grandfather. Um, now, the grandfather is mute. He doesn't speak throughout the movie. Um, well, mute might not be the right word. He just doesn't speak. Um, he seems to be able to hear and communicate okay with everyone. So, um, basically, as... Ambada is getting her little brother ready for bed. She hears um, her grandfather drop something in the bathroom. She goes to check on him in the bathroom, and he's just sitting there on the toilet, not actually using the toilet, just sitting there with his pants pulled all the way up. And then at that moment, the bedroom door that Raphael was in slams shut. She goes back to the door, and of course, as horror tropes go, the door is closed. She cannot get into it. She's banging on the door trying to get Raphael to open it, and, but, she, but with no luck. So finally she gets on all fours and looks at the space underneath the door. She sees her brother huddled in the corner, in the back corner of the bedroom, like he's terrified of something. He's in the fetal position. He's not moving. He's not answering her. And then finally um, a set of feet, a set of very old feet fall in front of the door, absolutely terrifying Amparo. Uh, she ends up making a big commotion, waking everyone up in the house, uh, getting mom and dad to come and check. 
Uh, they see that the door is locked. Dad, of course, breaks it down. So already on his first night, Dad's already breaking doors. But uh, uh, after Dad breaks the door down, they get into the bedroom, and there's Raphael sitting on his windowsill of an open window. Uh, like I said, they're on the third floor. It's pretty high up. Uh, but he is sitting on the windowsill. It doesn't look like he's, like, looking the jump. He's literally just peacefully sitting there. But, of course, you know, Raphael isn't answering everyone, so the dad very carefully approaches the windowsill, you know, making sure that Raphael doesn't make any sudden moves and potentially falls to his death. Dad is able to get um, Raphael off the windowsill, at which point both parents admonish Ambato for leaving him alone, even though she didn't technically leave him alone. She went to check on her grandfather, door slams behind her, blah, blah, blah. But again, you know, a uh, one thing that I really liked about this movie too, is despite all the stuff that um, Ambata goes through early in the movie, she never tells her parents. She never says, I think there's a ghost here. She never says, oh, I think there's something wrong with this apartment. And I kind of like that because it kind of shows a sense of reality because obviously in these movies, what happens when the first person goes to somebody else in the family and says, I think there's something wrong with this house? Of course, they get shot down, they get called silly, paranoid, whatever the case may be. So kudos to Ampara to just keep all this shit to herself, at least until it started to get dangerous. And obviously that very first night, I mean, that's not anything to laugh at. Uh, Raphael could have easily fallen out of the window, but of course he did not. So everything is fine. Uh, the family sits down for dinner and Ampara basically says that she's feeling queasy. She's not hungry and she excuses herself and goes to bed which is kind of the first little clue of what might be happening internally with Ambata. We'll get to that in the second act, or third act maybe, but we'll get there. Um, one thing that I forgot to mention is that on the day that they moved to the new house, um, Pepe, the brother, the middle brother, hands Ambata, or Ambaro, I keep mispronouncing her name, sorry. It's an unusual name. Um, when they first moved in, Pepe hands his sister a note, and he just says it's from what's-his-face in the village. Obviously, she makes an expression like, oh, you know, she knows exactly who he's talking about. Uh, and then the brother basically says, I didn't read the note, I swear. Hands it to her, and that's the end of it. Uh, or that's the end of it for a little bit. But then after that first, after the events of the first night with the windowsill and Raphael, we then get a scene where Ampato is sitting in bed reading the note. You can see a single tear fall down her face. So there's obviously some information in there. It didn't make her too happy, but we never really get um, specific points as to what happens. She ends up taking the note and hiding it inside of a book. What was the book? I forgot. It, it was an encyclopedia of some kind, but it's kind of funny because she opens the book right to that famous picture of Nebuchadnezzar. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting image to be in a random book that was just pulled off a shelf. But yeah, there it is. So um, once again, you know, we get a scene with Raphael and the grandfather in the bedroom where the mom continues to explain to him, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to share a bed with him. Blah, blah, blah. Um, that evening, um, which is now the second evening the family's here, uh, we get kind of a lights-out style jump scare where uh, the little boy 
looks up in the middle of the night, thinks that he sees an image, like a, the, a shadow person, if you will, standing in his doorway. He turns on the light. There's nothing there. He turns off the light. There's definitely something there. He goes back and forth until finally he turns on the light, and there's his mother uh, standing there going, what are you doing? Stop that. Go to bed. Um, and that's the end of that. The next day, uh, we get to see uh, Manolo, uh, the dad of the family, at his first day at work. He is now working for a trucking company, just kind of a general laborer for one of these trucking companies, you know, loading trucks, cleaning them, things like that, um, replacing parts. There's probably mechanic work involved, too, blah, blah, blah. Uh, then we see the mom has gotten herself a job in retail sales at a uh, department store in Madrid. Um, like I said, they're both on their first day. They both get kind of just general explanations, you know, uh, smoke break every two hours, you know, blah, blah, blah. At the store where mom is now working, she's taking pointers from her direct supervisor, who's a younger girl. And basically, like, notices that the mom isn't really wearing any makeup, so she actually pulls out her lipstick and puts lipstick on the mom and basically says it's very important that we look our best because we are retail sales. You know, the customers are going to come to us with questions, so we always have to be smiling and we always have to look good, blah, blah, blah. So there you go. Even in 1976 Spain, they objectify women. So there you go. Nothing changes. All right, so... Uh, we go back to the apartment, and um, now we see Amparo waking up Pepe for the morning. Um, you know, it's it's obviously both parents are already at work, and they're just waking Pepe up, so obviously he's a little bit of a, a sleeper in, if you will. Um, you know, he also, all throughout the movie, he has this very defeated look to him, like he's not like he's a loser necessarily, but he's just like down on himself. I mean, he's a fairly average looking Spanish boy, nothing really wrong with him physically. Um, but he obviously lacks confidence maybe because of his, um, you know, mental health issues or whatever the case may be. Like I said, it's all implied. This is just what I'm taking from it. Um, after his sister leaves his room, though, he ends up noticing that across the way from his bedroom window, there is another window, and it is connected by a clothesline, you know, where people would hang their clothes to dry them off. And he gets a note um, sent to him down the line from across the way, and it says, I am Clara. So it's obviously, you know, a girl living across the way, introducing herself. So, of course, him being a teenage boy in a new neighborhood, he's very happy. Uh, he writes down on, uh, he grabs the note, and on the back of it, he writes down, I'm Pepe, and he sends it back down the, down the clothesline, and he kind of waits there for a little while to see if she'll come to the window to grab the note herself. Um, but she doesn't, you know, after a few seconds, Pepe gets sick of waiting, and he um, goes back to whatever he was doing in his room, but then he hears the squeak of the clothesline being sent back to him. He goes to the window, and again, there is a note there uh, waiting for him. Uh, what did that second note say? God damn it. Do you, do you guys remember what it said after he introduced himself? I don't remember, but um, like I said, uh, so yeah, the, the, fir the first one said, Soy Clara, which is I am Clara. Right. He returns it with Soy Pepe. And then he gets it back 
um, oh, that's what it was. It was something like, I was expecting you or I was waiting for you. Something along those lines. Yeah, that sounds yeah, familiar. something like that. Right, yeah, yeah I think it, it was familiar. something like, I've been waiting for you. Yeah, so basically this person across the way tells Pepe that, you know, she's been expecting him or whatever, which obviously makes him look a little cross-eyed back across the way, but he never does see the girl. Every now and again, he might see someone walk by the window, but he doesn't really ever get a clear image of who, you know, or what the girl looks like, whatever. So um, we then see that um, Amparo is um, looking at brochures from airlines. It looks like she wants to be a stewardess. Um, you know, because everybody in the family is looking for work in the new town that they're in, and she seems fixated on being a flight attendant or stewardess uh, for this airline company. Um, it seems like she's getting dressed and getting ready to go, almost like she's going to call them, like cold call them, to see about potentially setting up an interview or whatever. Uh, but then she gets interrupted by her brother, who is playing with a top um, you're going to have to be pretty old to know what a top is, but it's basically <laughs> just one of those spinning toys that has like a rope attached to it. You pull the drawstring and, you know, the top spins. It's it's a very old toy. It's hundreds of years old. Yes, uh, the, that is the proper term for a, to for a top. Get your minds out of the gutter. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, the top actually belongs to the older brother, Pepe. But Pepe, who's obviously done with it, gave it to his little brother, but his little brother can't quite get the hang of pulling the drawstring and getting the top to spin properly. Um, so when he does it, he actually ends up scratching the floor a little bit, and then he gets um, he gets kind of admonished by his sister, telling him, stop that, don't play with that in the house, you're going to scratch up the floor, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then, you know, he basically gives her the top, she hides it, and then he goes back to watching television. Um, that's when we see her go into the phone book. Uh, she grabs the number for Iberia Airlines. Anyone who doesn't know what Iberia is, the Iberian Peninsula is the part of Europe where Spain and Portugal are kind of sticking out of the mainland. Um, so the Iberian Peninsula, basically. Spanish and Portuguese people aplenty. Um, but as she's looking for the number for the airlines, she opens up a phone book, an old phone book inside the house, and every number, or not a phone book, but an old phone bill. She pulls out an old phone bill uh, from the old lady that lived in the apartment before her, and she sees that there's only one number on it, just repeated over and over, hundreds of times. It looks like somebody was desperately trying to call this particular number. Um, keep that in your memory banks for now. We will revisit that in a little bit. So basically, after uh, you know, she writes down that number that's repeated on that phone bill, she goes to check on her brother who's eating breakfast in the kitchen. Everything is fine. But then Grandpa walks behind Amparo, and she doesn't notice, and he actually walks out of the apartment completely. Totally just walks right out of the apartment. Um... Obviously, she has to go get him because she's the caregiver um, while the parents are out working. So she tells her little brother, stay in the kitchen, blah, blah, blah. I'll be right back. I got to get grandpa. She goes outside. Grandpa is uh, basically walking around. And I, I forgot, grandpa does actually speak in this scene. Um, uh, Amparo asks him, grandpa, where are you going? 
And the grandfather says, I'm going back to the farm. And she's like, well, you can't go back to the farm. We sold it. You know, we moved here. We're in the city now. And the grandfather says, I need to get my shotgun. And, and, the, and Ambato's like, why do you need your shotgun? And he's like, um, she's going to take the boy. Something, something along those lines. Those might not be the exact words that he said, but something like she wants to take him or she's going to take him, something along those lines. Um, and the grandfather points up at the window where I never saw anybody standing at the window. I don't know if you guys ever noticed anybody, but there's multiple times in the movie where the grandfather's staring up at their third floor window and like pointing like he sees someone there i never yeah. did it the multiple times i didn't either and i wasn't sure if i was just missing it or if yeah. it was more just like there's you know there's six cents almost that would that was telling them that someone yeah. is right yeah. i had i was figuring more along the lines of the sixth sense idea that mike was talking about that yeah, that makes sense i mean it's they, re- they recognize something there that you you know the other character in the scene isn't around to see it, but yet the one that he, him being there longer allowed him to see it. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. So, uh, like I said, we're still outside the apartment. Finally, Ampero um, convinces Grandpa to go back in the house. He does so. But lo and behold, when Ampato and the grandfather come back, uh, the little brother is missing and then we we basically see the last couple of minutes what the little brother was doing uh he was in the kitchen eating his breakfast he accidentally spilled his milk and then he turned around and he sees a marble what go by uh the door in the hallway and yes it is the same green marble from the opening scene at this point the little boy realizes that the tv in the family room is on uh, and it's playing a puppet show. So he decides, oh, okay, I'll sit there. He recognizes the song that's playing. Um, one balloon, two balloon, three balloons, I believe, was the song. And he starts yeah. singing along with it. And he sits down in front of the television. And there's this little old lady marionette puppet who's kind of narrating the action that's going on on the screen. But then out of nowhere, the music, the background music stops. And the little marionette, the old lady marionette on the television turns towards the camera and starts talking directly to Raphael. Basically says, hi, how are you? My name is Grandma Berta. What's your name? And, you know, Raphael looks around the room and uh, the, the puppet goes, yes, yes, I am speaking to you. What's your name? And then, you know, Raphael gives them his whole name, gives the, the television his whole name. And uh, the television's like, oh, what a great, what a great name you have. It sounds so intelligent. And then she asks, would you like to play a game with me? Uh, the, you know, the boy nods yes. And then, you know, we, we go back outside to see, um, you know, uh, Ampato and Grandpa walking back into the building. But at that moment, uh, we go back to the family room where uh, the little boy is sitting by himself. And we see the top the toy top from the previous scene on the floor spinning by itself perfectly. It's perpetual. It's, you know, it's it's almost like the little thing from the end of inception, you know, is it going to stop? Is it not going to stop? It just keeps spinning on its own. Um, eventually the little, uh, the grandma puppet on the screen starts telling him, why don't you, you know, go play with the top, go try and practice. You're alone now. There's no one here. 
I made sure of it. Amparo is outside. And then she says, I'm going to call a friend. And she knows lots of games to play that she can play with you. And, um, you know, something along the lines of you have no idea how much she wants to meet you. At, at the moment that the grandma or the old lady marionette says that line, um, Raphael gets scared. He jumps up and he turns the television off. But then he turned off television. We, of course, see the reflection of a woman in white sitting in a chair behind him. Of course, the little boy turns around twice, both times. When he looks directly at the chair, there's nothing there. But when he looks at the television and looks at the reflection, uh, he sees the spirit moving closer and closer towards him until, you know, we finally get one final jump scare where a hand reaches out from the television and grabs Raphael. And then you, finally, then you see the top fall over. And it's kind of, this is a weird shot, too, because when the top falls over, you actually see the camera change focus to the marble. So it goes from the top to the marble, which I thought there's definitely a statement being made with that shot. I just don't know what it is, but I love the shot regardless. So there you go. Um, so like I said, Amparo and Grandpa come back up into the apartment and Rafa is gone. They are looking crazily. They can't find him. They look in every room in the house. Um um, Ampara goes back to the family room, notices that the TV is on, even though it wasn't on when she left. And then the scene ends there. Uh, we then go to a scene where the police are at the house. There's an inspector with a couple of um, beat police officers with him, basically getting information from the parents, getting as much information as they can, um, trying to, you know, calm the parents down, you know, giving them the same police spiel you know most kids usually just run away They're, they'll usually be back the same day blah 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 um the police basically can't really give the family any solace and unfortunately the family doesn't even have a telephone yet so the cops can't even call if they do get any information which is going to delay information even more because they're going to have to actually drive out to their apartment which granted is in the middle of downtown madrid so it's not that big a deal but still um after the police leave, the, um, the family decides we can't just sit here while our son is missing. So the mom, the dad, and the older brother all leave to go look for Raphael. Of course, somebody has to stay at the house with Grandpa, and of course, that's going to be Amparo. So she is basically now alone in the house. She notices that her brother drew a picture earlier in the day showing the entire family, but there's a sixth member in the family that she doesn't recognize. And, you know, so she's, she's a little weirded out, of course. She notices the picture, and then she starts hearing, um, you know, just random noises throughout the house, um, you know, shifts in the darkness, and then suddenly a telephone rings. Yes, I just said this family doesn't have a telephone. They made a very solid point of that, and... Suddenly, a telephone is ringing. Amparo finds the telephone, and she sees that the telephone cord is broken. It's not plugged into the wall. It's like frayed. 
she picks up the telephone and answers it, and lo and behold, it's her little brother. It's Raphael on the phone. And she basically starts imploring to him, where are you? Tell me where you are. He starts talking about how he's scared, how he can't talk loud or somebody will notice him or they'll hear me. Uh, and then a couple of minutes into the conversation, we hear Raphael say, oh, no, I think they heard me. Oh, God, she spotted me. Something along those lines. Um, you know, he says, I've been seen. And then he screams. But the scream doesn't come from the telephone. The scream comes from within the walls of the house, of the apartment that they're in. Um, Ambato, you know, quickly runs towards the source of the screaming and realizes that it's coming from the other side of a shared wall with the other apartment on that floor. There's two apartments on that floor, 3A and 3B. Of course, our family lives in 3B, the apartment that the old lady in the opening scene lived in. And um, they're knocking at the door at 3A because, like I said, sister is convinced she heard her brother. As she's at the door knocking, trying to get someone to open, the rest of her family shows up, including another neighbor from the building. The neighbor lets them know, look, no one's lived in there in ages. There can't be anyone in there. But the daughter convinces her family that she heard um, Raphael's voice in there. She heard him screaming and everything else. Dad is convinced. He smashes the door down. Within a week, Dad's already broken two doors in this apartment building. Not very good tenants. Anyway, um, they break into the apartment in 3A. It is uninhabited. It's still furnished, but just like their apartment when they moved in, it's dusty. It looks uninhabited, like no one's been in there for a few years. Um, we will find out why by the end of the, the, the movie, so hold tight. Um, so yeah, like I said, the family's going around this apartment looking for him. Suddenly they find footsteps. Um, like I said, the apartment is very old. They actually find footsteps in the dust on the floor of someone walking out of one of the bedrooms in this empty apartment towards the shared wall where Ampato heard her brother's voice, and the footsteps lead right into a uh, grandfather clock, one of those big, tall, you know, um, clocks that rich people used to have. Um, they don't, you know, they see the footsteps go back towards um, the clock, but at this point, they don't actually open the clock or check it. They just kind of, you know, they realize that it's their shared wall, so they know that the daughter isn't full of shit or pulling their leg but um, at one point, the sister, Ambato, is walking around the apartment by herself, the other apartment, the empty one, and she thinks she sees her little brother, Raphael, standing behind a curtain. We all know what's coming here now, right? <laughs> As she walks towards the curtain, the shadow gets taller and taller. So it starts out looking like a boy about Raphael's size. But like I said, as she approaches it, it gets taller until finally the shadow is taller than her. She goes to she goes to pull the curtain back to see who's there, and she's grabbed by a mysterious hand, and she just starts freaking out. She starts yelling and crying. The family comes back and joins her in that room. They basically decide, okay, we're not going to find anything in this apartment. We're just freaking ourselves out, blah, blah, blah. 
So let's just go ahead and leave. Uh, they end up leaving for the night, and it is now the next morning. Dad is preparing to go to work, because um, it's only, don't forget, it's only like their second or third day of their new jobs. But Mom doesn't want to go to work. Mom is crying, and she's like, how can I possibly leave this house with my youngest son missing? Dad convinces her, listen, we just got these jobs if we don't, if we miss our second day, they're going to fire us. So let's just go to work. You know, the, the, everybody else is here. Grandpa, the two older kids. If Raphael shows up or if the cops show up with new information, they'll be here to get that. Mom agrees and they all end up going to work. Um, at this point, Ampato, uh goes to use a, cell, uh, a pay phone outside, not a cell phone. No cell phones in 1976. Uh, she goes outside to use a payphone to call the number from the phone bill that was repeated hundreds of times. Uh, she ends up calling the number, asking to speak to uh, the owner of the phone line, Susanna. Su Susanna something is the name of the person who owns that particular line. Uh, she asks to speak to the person, but they, uh, the, the, the woman on the phone says, no, she's not here, and basically just ends up hanging up on her. Um, at, once Ampara actually mentions the apartment, when she mentions, we just moved into 32 Malasagna Street and we see your number on an old phone bill, at that point, the person just hangs up on them. So it's now uh, the second day at work for mom. She's at the retail outlet uh, at the store. And this is when she runs into a girl named Lola, who is um, bound to a wheelchair. And uh, Lola's very, you know, physically and mentally disabled. She can't speak. She basically has a whistle next to her mouth that she could blow on to call um, her mother or guardian, whoever the old woman is. And then we meet the old woman. Her name is Mrs. Davalos, and she is a customer of the store. All the employees recognize her, except Candela, of course, who, you know, it's just her second day. Um... You know, um, the old woman, Mr. Valos, and Sandala, the mother, uh, they exchange pleasantries, blah, blah, blah. But then you can kind of see both Lola and Mrs. Davalos' facial expression change. And then she basically says, wait, I have something for you. And she actually hands her a prayer card that says, um, I forget exactly what it said on the card, something along the lines of prayer defeats demons or something like that, right? It was something along those lines. Um, but basically, yeah, she hands her, she hands the mom a prayer card and says, here, use it. Read it to your children at night. It will protect you. And obviously, this is all out of nowhere because, you know, Candela, the mom, she has no idea who these people are, but obviously they are perceptive in some way um, because they recognize that she's in trouble and it's, you know, kind of a spiritual troubleness, uh, trouble, so... Um, so obviously Lola and Mrs. Davalos are very perceptive. Uh, the next scene, we go back to the apartment where Pepe is in his room reading. He's just got a magazine or something in front of him and he's reading. And then we hear the squeaks of the clothesline. So another note is coming down, um, you know, to Pepe from the window across the way. And then this one, this note, I forget exactly how it starts, but the exchange ends with, I know where your brother is. Um, I think the exchange started with your brother is all right. 
Pepe I thought asked, you were going to say, I know what your brother did last summer. I was like, I don't think it said that. <laughs> Nobody did anything last summer. We were all stuck at home. Shut up. <laughs> um, anyway, so, um, yeah, so, like I said, she, uh, Pepe gets another note. Um, they, they exchange back and forth. You know, the first one says, your brother is okay. He then asks, do you know where my brother is? She replies, yes, I know where he is. You know, they go back and forth until finally... Um, a note comes down the line that says, uh, I know where your brother is, meet me in the basement, which of course is the basement of the apartment building that they are now dwelling in. So Pepe reads the note, throws on some clothes. He actually puts on some nice clothes because he thinks he's about to meet the cute teenage girl across the way, or at least what he thinks is a cute teenage girl. Uh, But he ends up going down to the basement, looking around, um, you know, most of the doors are locked. He's, you know, walking around the dark, yelling, hello, anybody here, blah, blah, blah. Finally, he gets into a room at the end of the hall in the basement. Um, He lights a candle so that he can kind of see what's going on. And uh, if I remember correctly, I think we just have kind of like a little jump scare moment here um, where something just kind of jumps out of the shadows. Once again, that kind of long, um, stringy hand that came out of the TV to grab Raphael. I think that hand makes another appearance in this scene. Um, It's a quick jump scare. We don't get much. Um, But then at the exact moment that the jump scare in the basement occurs, um, Ampato is coming home from the grocery store. She's got two bags of groceries in her arms. And as soon as she walks into her door, she doubles over from pain, like the, her stomach is bothering her, and she drops the groceries and doubles over. And she goes into the bathroom, pulls out her shirt, and there is a giant handprint right on her belly. And, and I mean giant, like it, it couldn't possibly be a human hand. Uh, it, it'd be too big to be Bigfoot, even. I mean, this is definitely that big, you know, spindly hand that kind of came out of the TV to grab Raphael. So, you know, uh, she sees the bruise on her hand and then she starts hearing noise in the house, realizing that she's probably not alone. She goes to the bathroom and realizes that grandpa's in there and he's at the sink, either shaving or brushing his teeth, doing something. Uh, When she looks through the open crack of the bathroom door, she sees her grandfather But then when she looks through the glass window pane, there's like a small, almost like a porthole, like a glass porthole in the middle of that door. When she looks through the glass, she no longer sees her grandfather. She sees, you know, the the thing that we've been seeing little shots of throughout the movie. Um, Long, white hair, very tall, tall and thin. I mean, over six feet tall with very long, spindly white hair. At that point, she questions her grandfather, you know, what were you doing, blah, blah, blah. Um, And as the grandfather is literally at the door staring at Ampero, the, the stove turns on, like, to a very high flame, like, supernatural high flame. And, you know, she basically tells her grandfather, you're burning something, you're burning something. And lets him know, if you wanted coffee or something to eat, I can make it for you, please just let me know. But then the grandfather, in a voice that's not his own, says, help me, to Ampero. And then she says, wait, what? 
and then the grandfather says something else and it's in the it's in Raphael's voice then the camera turns and actually shows the grandfather speaking in Raphael's voice so for some reason Raphael is using grandpa as a vessel I don't know if this is legitimately Raphael or if this is our malevolent spirit fucking with Ampero um, you know we don't really get a confirmation of that because at that moment the telephone rings and grandpa instantly comes out of his like you know like he doesn't realize what he was doing um when he was speaking in Raphael's voice he probably lost control or gave up control of himself to another entity but then he snaps out of it right when the phone rings yes again the phone that they don't have is ringing in the apartment grandpa doesn't even react but of course Amparo you know goes and uh, answers the phone once again, uh, on the phone is the voice of Raphael, but this time the voice is screaming, um, just screaming. But it's definitely Raphael's voice screaming. She, uh, once again, she hears the scream kind of emulate throughout the apartment, not just on the phone. So she literally runs outside her apartment, and as soon as she walks out of her apartment door, the door to 3A across the hall opens on its own, almost like it's inviting her in. Ampero walks into the apartment, and at the moment that she walks into the apartment, uh, the clock strikes 11. Um, it's exactly 11, and she, when she hears the clock strike 11 times, she walks over to the clock, looking at it like, why do you suddenly work now? But then out of nowhere, we see a child's hand up on the glass from the opposite from the inside of the clock uh, a child's hand goes up against the glass obviously most of us are expecting nothing to be there but lo and behold Ampero um, she breaks the glass the, the front glass panel of the grandfather clock and lo and behold there's Raphael there's her brother completely unharmed just laying there um, you know he's almost being apologetic like he was in trouble but at that moment, then, um, we see Dad at work, and he receives a phone call. Um, his boss tells him that he has a phone call and that it has something to do with his son. Without even missing a beat, Dad instantly just leaves work without saying anything to anyone. And suddenly, we're all back home. And everyone's home, Dad's home, Mom's home, brother, sister, Grandpa. And there's a doctor there as well who's looking over Raphael. Um, he looks him over and he's like, yeah, there's nothing physically wrong with him, I think. Um, but unfortunately, Raphael isn't speaking right now. He's completely catatonic. He's not really communicating with anybody. Um, and the doctor basically just says that he's probably in shock because he spent, you know, more than a full day inside of a grandfather clock in the dark. So, you know, a ch he, he basically claims that a child being trapped in the dark for that long could give him a form of PTSD or shock. So um, he may not talk for a little while, but he will eventually start speaking again. Um, let's see. Uh, we get a, we get a conversation with the parents after that, where they're talking where the mom basically says she's not happy with Madrid. Obviously who would be, it seems like their lives have gone to shit since they got there. But um, you know, Dad basically explains to Mom, look, we sank all of our money into this mortgage. There's nothing we can do. We can't get out of it. 
the only thing we'd be able to do would just be abandon the apartment and leave, but we still have to pay for it. Um, you know, they get into a little bit of an argument, but they end up, you know, settling their differences and everything's fine. Um, mom and daughter have a little bit of an uh, interaction, you know, just uh, it, it, almost like mom apologizing for all the yelling that she's been doing to Ambato over the last few days, you know, admonishing her for every little thing that's gone wrong. And then mom decides to sleep with Raphael that night um, in the same bedroom with grandpa. Obviously, it's her first, you know, the son's back for the first time. You know how moms are. So, of course, she wants to sleep in the same bed with her son just to make sure nothing happens. But during the evening, uh, mom and the son wake up and mom looks over at Raphael and Raphael looks like he's staring at the uh, he's staring at the corner of the room like he sees something terrifying, like he's frozen in fear. The mom, of course, is like, well, what's going on? Do you see something? And the boy nods yes. Mom then turns around, doesn't see anything, but the boy does see a hand reach out from under a cabinet and write something on his Etch-a-Sketch. He has, like, you know, the classic old red Etch-a-Sketch on the floor. Uh, he sees the hand reach out from under it, almost like it's writing something on the Etch-a-Sketch. But then at that moment, uh, the camera view goes back to the kitchen, where we then see Amparo mixing up something to drink. It looks like she's just making herself like a little tonic, but then the camera zooms in on the box that's on the counter, and it's rat poison. She has a glass of water, a spoon, and a box of rat poison in front of her. You see her dip the spoon into the rat poison, pulling out a large spoonful of rat poison. But instead of pouring that whole thing in the water, she ends up pouring about half of it back in the box off the spoon so that the spoon isn't quite full. She then pours that into the glass to drink it. And what that tells me is that she's not trying to commit suicide because if she was trying to commit suicide, she'd just put all the fucking rat poison in the water and drink it. But she only put a little bit in there. So there's obviously an alternative, an ulterior motive here. Keep that uh, in the back of your head. Um, that'll resolve itself here in a couple of minutes. Um, so let's see. Uh, like I said, we go back uh, to the bed. Oh, no, we go to Pepe's room this time. Yeah, this is the night where, like, the shit hits the fan, and basically every member of the family has supernatural things happen to them. Uh, Pepe starts to hear the squeak of the clothesline outside his window, um, and then he starts to see, like, a note come down the line, but then he starts seeing more notes and more notes and literally all three clotheslines are full of notes coming down the way uh, to what's his face to Pepe's bedroom. He freaks out. Um, but then the camera goes to the sewing room where Amparo was working on some clothing earlier in the day. Uh, the sewing machine turns on by itself and then writes the word slut in Spanish in embroidery on the dress that's on the, that's currently on the sewing machine. It just turns on by itself and just spells out slut in Spanish. I forget what the word for slut is, but yeah, uh, they translated it there for you. So yeah, so now we've got a ghost accusing this 
what seems to be a virginal girl of being a slut, you know, it kind of it, it, it kind of makes sense for a demon. You know, demons are always offensive, so you know, didn't think too much of it at the moment, but that combined with the rat poison and combined with the note that she read from her ex-boyfriend from the village, or at least we assume her ex-boyfriend from the village, kind of equals a very obvious ending, which we'll get to in a little bit. So, um, again, all, all members of the house have a uh, something happen to them. I forget exactly what happens to Dad, but somehow something kind of jumps out at him and scares him as well. Um, at that moment, mom comes screaming out of the bedroom because something had jumped out from behind the cabinet in her son and grandfather's room to scare her. It is, of course, the old woman. We start getting more defined shots of her. You know, we actually see her full visage walking around the apartment. As I said, very tall, taller than anyone in the, in the family, very thin with incredibly long appendages and fingers specifically. Like the hands and fingers are like incredibly uh, elongated. At this point, the family, they get the whole family together and they are all cowering in the corner of the apartment while just, you know, noises and moans and, you know, uh, the audio starts swelling up to this incredibly, you know, loud pitch. And finally, the scene ends, you know, with everyone in the family just terrified. Uh, they end up going to a local hotel. And this is the thing that confuses me that I probably should have looked up uh, before the episode, because I have no idea what this is, and I'm a Spaniard. Uh, basically, the family ends up going to a local hotel, uh, saying, you know, we'd like a room for, for a couple of nights. And the guy then asks them, can you show me your family register? I have no idea what a family register is. I didn't know families had to register in Spain at any point in history, but um, so there's something for me to look up after the show. That's something for all of us to look up after the show. But yeah, um, the family, obviously they don't have anything with them, any other possessions. They just ran out of their apartment. Uh, they let the clerk know, I'm sorry, we don't have our register with us. We, we just left in a hurry. Um, but then the dad says, how about this? How about if I pay for two rooms, but we just want one? So at least you're making a little something out of this. And the guy uh, agrees, gives them a room, takes their money, and then lets them know you have to be out in the morning, blah, blah, blah. So whatever this family register thing is, uh, apparently it's something important that people should be carrying with them. Maybe the patriarch of the family should be carrying it or whatever. But yeah, there it is. So. Um, they spend a fairly quiet night in the hotel, no hauntings, no, you know, nothing of uh, consequence happens to anyone. Um, and then the next morning, the parents go back to the bank and basically they're trying to get out of their mortgage. They're, they're letting the guy know there's something wrong with the house, uh, and we don't want it anymore. Unfortunately, they've already signed a mortgage. They've already made at least one payment because the guy mentions, you can't get your down payment. You can't get anything back, your down payment or any payments that you've already made. Uh, the guy, um, the, the, uh, the dad basically says, that's fine. I don't care. I just want to get out of this mortgage. And then the guy lets him know, well, unfortunately, mortgages are for life. You can't get out of it. 
That's why you had to sign a life insurance policy when you got the mortgage from us. Uh, the parents just both kind of looked down and, you know, defeated. Obviously, they are stuck. Uh, all of their finances are tied up into this house. They can't go back to their village. They keep talking about not being able to go back to their village because of something. They don't ever tell us what right away. Uh, we'll find out later. But, uh, yeah, obviously there's some kind of, you know, kind of bad history in this family that's keeping them from going back to their home village. So, um, mom and dad, after, after the scene at the bank, mom and dad have a little exchange where dad lets mom know that he was fired from his job because, like I said, when he got the news about the phone call about his son, he just took off. He didn't say anything to anybody, and they fired him instantly. So uh, mom basically says, well, I have to go to work. Someone has to support this family, you know, that classic argument line, you know, somebody has to support us. So mom goes to work, but then she remembers Mrs. Davalos, who had given her the prayer card earlier, and she remembers that Mrs. Davalos had dropped off a dress for alterations at the store that she works at. So she basically goes to like a closet that has all of the completed alterations looking for the one that belongs to Mrs. Davalos. She does eventually find it, pulls it off the rack and looks at the address on the card and realizes that she lives pretty close. But at that exact moment, um, her friend that was putting makeup on her earlier walks into the room and says, what are you doing? And she goes, no, 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 I'm not doing what you think I am. I just want to deliver this to Mrs. Davalos personally. She's, you know, um, but then the girl says, well, listen, you're late a lot. You haven't had very many sales. By the end of the month, you're going to have to answer for all this stuff, um, you know, because I'm not the be all end all. I'm your direct supervisor, but I can't save your job if, you know, we can't come up with results. So she nods her head and walks out. Uh, she ends up going and traveling to Mrs. Davalos's house. Um, she asks to speak to Mrs. Davalos. At first, she is denied, but then uh, the old lady walks down the stairs, recognizes um, Candela right away, and actually says, what took you so long to come see me? So obviously Lola and Miss Davalos knew that there was something very wrong with Candela and her family. She ends up going, like I said, going to Mrs. Davalos' house. They, they meet up with Lola again, and that's when Mrs. Davalos lets her know that Lola has a very special talent. Lola, who is, of course, a mute, doesn't speak, um, is stuck in a wheelchair. Um, she's, a, she's kind of a medium. Uh, wait, is that the word? A vessel. That's what it was, a vessel uh, for the dead. Uh, basically, dead spirits who haven't left our plane can speak through Lola. Now, obviously, we've seen this before in many, many movies with uh, Ouija board sequences or psychic reading sequences, things like that, where the medium, where a spirit will speak through the medium. So, once again, nothing new and original there, but, you know, just kind of a neat little thing that this poor wheelchair-bound girl who looks like she has no purpose actually does have a very important purpose in this world. And, uh, you know, they explain to her what that she could potentially um, get the spirit to speak through her and potentially let them know what it wants and why it won't leave. Um, Candela, the mom, agrees, and they all proceed back to her apartment. Uh, 
Um, then we see the dad back at the hotel room. Don't forget the hotel room that the family stayed at last night. Uh, when he arrives at the hotel room, Pepe is gone, but Rafael's there in the room. Rafael and Grandpa are in the hotel room by themselves. Dad starts to admonish Pepe for leaving his brother alone, but then Pepe pulls out some money and gives it to his father and says, here's what I got for the metrodome, uh, metronome. Excuse me. Um, and I forgot to mention that throughout the movie, they do show a metronome a couple of times. I think it's Pepe's way of falling asleep because I think he uses it, you know, the constant noise helps him fall asleep. But uh, basically, you know, uh, Dad and Pepe have a tender moment because the metronome is literally Pepe's only possession, and he sold it for the family. So, of course, we have some tears, we have a hug, blah, blah, blah. And we are back to the apartment. Uh, we are back to 32 Malasagna Street. And at this point, uh, the family is at the house, but all members of the family are there except Ampara. She's nowhere to be found. Uh, the psychic then tells the dad, your daughter needs to be here. We can't do this without her. At that moment, we then see Ampara knocking on a door. And the door opens and there's an old woman uh, behind the door. Who oddly looks a lot like the old woman from uh, the opening scene of the movie. Not exactly, because obviously we never get to see the, the, the spirit's face or the old woman's face at the beginning of the movie. But, you know, it, it's kind of obvious that they, that they have to either know each other or have some kind of relation. So, uh, while they're at the old woman's, uh, while Ampada's at the old woman's apartment, uh, you know, the old woman starts talking about, you know, who used to live there and how they knew each other, and she's obviously lying at first until Ampara actually finds a picture in her apartment, and the picture is the exact same picture that's on Ampara's wall in their apartment where they first got there. Uh, the old lady informs Ampara that that's not me. Don't worry about it. You know, it, it, It's not like I'm haunting your apartment. That's not me. But then she asks over and over again, who lived in that apartment? The old woman, obviously, being kind of uh, douchey, standoffish, not giving her the information right away, but then she eventually does admit that she did know who was in that apartment. She says that, uh, you know, at one point, we all lived in that house. It wasn't apartments. It was just one building altogether. And then we get the reveal and the movie does the reveal a lot better than I'm about to do it. But basically we get a reveal that yes, she knows who lived in apartment three B and that it was a family member of hers. Um, the old woman continues asking Ampada some, you know, trivial questions like who's in, how many people are in your family? What's the age of the youngest uh, in the family? And, you know, that she tells him, my little brother Raphael is five. And and she says that, oh, the spirit took him, but then gave him back to us the next day. And we don't know why. And the and the, the woman, the old woman is basically like, yeah, uh, Susanna, I forgot. Yeah, Susanna is her name. Uh, she basically puts two and two together and basically says, ah, the spirit gave you back your boy because it now wants a different boy an even younger one 
And that's when Ambata looks down at her belly and realizes, <laughs> oh shit, the spirit wants my unborn child. The plot thickens. Yeah, so that's the first reveal of this spirit basically wanting a child because in life they couldn't have one. So now they spend, you know, their uh, the afterlife trying to get another one. Then we get reveal number two. Now, obviously, with all the information that we've been given so far, we assume, including what we saw in the opening scene of the movie, we assume that this is an old woman living by herself. Bum, 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 big reveal. It is not a woman. It is her brother, Susanna, the old woman uh, who does not live in that building anymore, admits that that was not my sister. That was my brother. <laughs> and he took up the name Clara as a woman. Uh, basically, this kid... Now, this is the 70s. Well, obviously, when these kids, when these old people were kids, we're probably talking like the 20s or the 30s. So, you know, we, we know where society is there for cross-dressers or transsexuals, whatever the case may be. But, yeah... Um, she relays um, a story about how her brother was caught wearing women's clothing, panties and pantyhose and stuff like that, and was completely admonished by their father. That, like I said, they were, they were brother and sister. And that because he can never have a child in life, for obvious reasons, he spends his afterlife trying to get a boy. Um, and... Because, um, and because Ampada, because Raphael was returned to her, that, of course, is our final confirmation that, yes, Ampada is pregnant. It turns out that she made, that she was probably pregnant before she left the village, which could lend to the reason why they left. Um, we get a different reason in a little bit here, but, you know, uh, you know, um, in, in 70s Spain, if you're living, if you're not living in the city, in the more progressive city, if you're living in the more conservative villages outside of the main cities, yeah, uh, uh, getting pregnant outside of wedlock does not look good for the entire family, not just Ampara, but for the entire family. So that kind of starts to explain a little bit about why the family left uh, that town. It turns out Ampara is pregnant. Um, you know, like I said, we get all these series of reveals back and forth, and suddenly uh, we go back to the apartment uh, where the family is outside the front door of their apart of uh, their apartment three B, and like I said, they're waiting for Ampada to get back because the psychic, you know, Mr. Valos told them we need your daughter here, um, but the door opens on its own. And and Mr. Valos lets them know she wants us to go in now. And uh, the family does exactly that. They end up walking into the apartment, um, kind of looking around, not really finding anything. But then suddenly, out of nowhere, um, the phone rings. Or no, 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 before the phone even rings, I'm sorry. Um, we basically see Lola, the girl in the in the wheelchair. She actually starts to get up on her own. And mind you, if, we, if you saw the condition of Lola for the first most of the movie, you know she can't get up on her own. She gets up on her own, and suddenly by the time she's up on her feet, the wheelchair slides out from under her, 
and she starts to float. Suddenly she's a couple of inches off the ground, and we now realize she is now being possessed by the spirit, uh, transsexual Clara. I forget what, the, what, what his name actually was. Clara was what he called himself as a girl because, you know, he was so upset that he wanted to be a woman, you know, a woman trapped in a man's body. Um, obviously something that really speaks to today's society more than it would in the 70s because obviously that's going to be a much more closeted um, subject in the 70s, much more openly talked about today. So poor Clara, maybe if, you know, was born in our generation, would have been a little bit more accepted for being different. But unfortunately, you know, being a child in the early part of the century and ha having sexual identity issues, or at least in society's eyes, sexual identity issues, um, obviously the sun was cast out. Um, the the uh, that apartment building at 32 Manasanya Drive, uh, this family, the, the family of Clara and Susanna, actually owned the entire building as one house. But then, you know, uh, first the parents moved out when they found out about their son being the way he is. Uh, Susanna stuck around for a little bit longer to try to help support her brother, but then she kind of fell into the same pit that the rest of her family fell into that, you know, our brother is a freak, you know, you, you should be shunned and ignored. And that's why we get the trope of the ringing telephone throughout the movie, because it's revealed that after Susanna moved out of the house and moved into the apartment that she's currently in, her brother slash sister constantly called her. But she never answered the phone because she always knew that it was her brother calling. So she never answered her phone. And that's why the phone bill was filled with hundreds of phone calls to this same number. She lets, you know, she lets, the, she lets her, um, or Susanna, the old woman, lets Ampada know that she lived in 3A. Clara lived in 3B. Um, but I couldn't take living there anymore because of the freak that my brother turned into, so she basically moved out and ignored him. Yeah, what a what a not uh, sympathetic sister to the whole situation. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's a you know, regardless of the day and age, it's a terrible thing. But you also have to look at the fact that you know, obviously, these people are in their seventies or eighties, so we're talking like the nineteen tens when they were teenagers. Uh, could you imagine a boy coming out and saying, I feel like a girl in a boy's body in the 1910s? I mean, that's almost a death sentence, especially yeah. in certain parts of the country. In certain parts of the country, that boy wouldn't have survived that night. But at least in Madrid, in a somewhat progressive city, you know, they, they allowed him to exist, but everybody in his family abandoned him. So, And I really did like that whole sequence. Um yeah, with great the wheelchair bound character coming out of her um, chair and floating and yeah. being a medium and all. Actually, I like both dueling things because that was going on while she was visiting. Yeah, these um, two scenes house. are parallel. They're, they are happening at the same time. So, because um, what do you call it? Ampado doesn't show up at the house um, at their at their apartment until you know most of what's happened has happened. But um, yeah. Um, so, like I said. Um, Lola is floating around. She's now speaking in the voice of Clara, uh, basically saying, you know, the boy is mine. I, you know, I want him, blah, blah, blah. And then Miss Davalos pulls out a book. Uh, it might be a Bible. I don't know. 
Um, but it, it, she starts reading passages out of it that sound like they're exorcism, rites of exorcism. Um, and then they do a really cool gag that I actually fucking loved. She's holding the book. So she's holding this Bible type book in her hands and then and, and reading from it. And you can see that the spirit is being affected by the words that are being spoken. What ends up happening is the spirit of Clara, who is in Lola, who's still floating in midair at this point, basically gestures towards the book. And we start to see the ink from the book start to slowly fade, like disappear. And I thought that was going to be the end of the gag, that she just made the ink disappear. No, as the ink is disappearing from the book, we see the old woman's veins in the lower part of her hand start to turn ink black. So it's like it's like the spirit is taking the ink out of the book and injecting it into her fucking bloodstream. And then suddenly the old lady just starts spitting up ink, just black ink just starts coming out of her mouth. I don't know why this worked for me, but it's just something I hadn't really seen before. So I just loved it. I thought it was cool and original. Uh, it it worked for you because it was awesome and something we haven't yeah. seen before. <laughs> yeah, I thought oh, so cool. Like, just the ink disappearing from the book would have been enough. But the fact that it fucking shows up in her veins and then she spits it out. Ah, loved it. One of my favorite yeah. set pieces of the year so far. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, we've seen, you know, the vomiting, you know, stuff spewing out of a person before. But I think the connection with the disappearing off the book and then it being from you know, being vomited out the way it is, it's, I, yeah, I do agree. It's a, one of the best gags. Yeah, definitely one of the better ones in the movie. Um, as the old woman is spitting up the blood, she ends up dropping the book and dropping to all fours, at which point all the adults and children other than Raphael in the room have all been pinned against the wall by the spirit, by uh, Clara, and Clara starts to slowly walk up to um uh to Raphael she actually puts her hands over Raphael's mouth like she's about to take him and then and then uh Ambada shows up and Ambada basically uses her real name and says Clara stop that and she ends up dropping the boy and turning her attention to Ambada and then Ambada does that kind of the ring fear.com type thing where she basically lets Clara know, I know your real story. I know that you were wronged. I, I you know, I know that you were mistreated. You were, um, you know, uh, treated poorly by your family, ignored, abandoned, everything. But you can't have my brother. Please don't take him and don't take my baby. Because obviously um, it, it seems like Clara is going to be fine either taking Raphael or taking uh, Ambada's unborn child. Because um, depending on the scene, she goes after both. But like I said, now in this scene, once Ampara shows up, uh, the spirit drops Raphael, turns her attention to her, and as Ampara is pleading with her to, you know, not take my not take my child, blah blah blah. Again, she says, "Mine, mine. The boy is mine. Give him to me." Um, Ambada then basically grabs a large piece of broken glass off the, off the ground and she puts the glass up to her belly and she threatens to kill the unborn child if Clara doesn't leave her alone. Clara, um, 
is kind of at a standstill at this point. Doesn't know what to do. Doesn't know if she should advance. Um, we get kind of a silent moment where all the family members are looking at each other. They're all still pinned against the wall, so they can't move. But they don't know what's about to happen. Suddenly, Ampara, like I said, she takes the glass and she jams it into her belly. Not very deep, but deep enough uh, for it to cut and for there to be blood. At, a, at that exact moment, Clara releases her hold that she has on the family. All the family members fall off the wall. They're no longer pinned on the wall. But at the exact moment that dad has full control of his body, uh, he basically does you know, the ultimate sacrifice thing. He grabs Lola and they both, uh, he forces them both to jump out the window of their third floor apartment. Uh, we then see the camera go uh, out of the uh, porch window and down to the ground floor, showing the dad. Um, it looks like he landed first. He's on the bottom. Lola is on top. There is a large pool of blood uh, forming uh, around the dad's head. And then after a couple of seconds of silence, uh, Lola comes too. Lola actually wakes up on top of the dad, which is a good thing because... I was ready to not like this ending because I started to think, well, nice job, dad. You just killed yourself <laughs> and an innocent person in the hopes of saving your family. Like you don't even know that's going to work, but you just sacrificed yourself and potentially an innocent girl. Cause don't forget Lola is just a, uh, you know, the vessel. She's an innocent person. Kind of the, kind of the exorcist ending. Uh, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but instead of killing Reagan, <laughs> uh, they tried to kill Lola. Uh, but like I said, Lola lands on top. She wakes up and she is no longer possessed by um, Clara. She's back to herself. So mildly happy ending there. Lola is alive. Unfortunately, dad has passed on. Uh, we then have another short time jump. It's a few days later and we see once again Javier Botet as the realtor walk up to uh, the mom, Sandela, and basically tell her, well, look, as it turns out, I have an interested buyer in your apartment, and because your husband is now dead, that kind of um, exonerates you from any responsibility on the mortgage. So, um, yeah, uh, Ma, we see mom, we see a very pregnant Ampata uh, holding a suitcase. So obviously, like I said, some time has gone by because Ampata wasn't showing in the final scene uh, of the battle. But she is now very solidly showing, probably a good three, four months into her pregnancy at this point. And uh, we basically see the family load up into a taxi cab and leave Madrid, I assume, to go back to uh, their little village out in the sticks. And I think, oh, and then we get one last little attempt at a jump scare. Um, after the family moves out, uh, the camera is seen inside of their apartment. Uh, there's a rocking chair moving by itself. There is a telephone on the little table next to the rocking chair. Of course, the phone rings. And then we see one last quick shocking image of Clara before we go to our credits and that is 32 malasagna street 2020 ah yay yeah. would it be racist for me to say i want a burrito now 
But it's my people, so fuck it. <laughs> is Brito... That's Brito's Mexican, even Spanish in origin? I was about to say. I'd have to, uh, <laughs> paella probably would have been a better way to go. <laughs> mm, but I still want a burrito, so shut up. But yeah, I mean, what can I say? What, what else can we say about the movie? Um, it's going to work for a lot of people. It's not going to work for a lot of other people. It's a slow burn. Um, not a whole lot of horror set pieces, and the ones that we do get, like I said, aren't the most original kind of, you know, um, standard uh, haunted house fare. Like I said, I like the fact that they brought in, a, you know, a, 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 like a question of sexuality into this, because, you know, in the 70s, we weren't getting, you know, uh, transsexual spirits. So, you know, other than Rocky Horror Picture Show, maybe, but other than that, um, I, I like the inclusion of that. Obviously, this is a 2020 movie, but it is set in 1976, so it's still kind of cool to see the stigma and how bad the stigma was to the point where this family completely abandoned this person. But not only abandoned them, actually left them in their childhood home. Like, they didn't sell the home. They literally just left the home and left him alone there to rot in his women's clothes. So um, I like the social commentary of that. But like I said, when it comes to the actual haunted house stuff, nothing really new. Uh, we talked about the uh, the ink disappearing from the book. That's probably one of the most original-looking things in the movie. Clara herself isn't all that original-looking. Like I said, a tall, thin, white-haired spirit, your basic haunted, you know, old lady. Um, but like I said, uh, and like Mike said earlier, this movie is definitely driven more by the family dynamic, the performances of the people in it. Um, you know, our, our one... Our one wordless performance by uh, Lola in the wheelchair, that was even really good. So not a whole lot of stuff to nitpick about this movie as far as like negative stuff. Just stuff that we've seen before that's being rehashed. Um, not a major complaint from me. Um, like I said, I enjoy the movie, but the movie's not original enough or even scary enough for me to really consider it as one of the tops of 2020. Um, it's probably one of the better Spanish horror films I've seen this year, since there haven't been all that many, honestly. But um, mm -hmm. overall, overall, I really enjoyed it. I recommend it. And, um, you know, anybody who knows anything about me, they know how much I love my slow burn uh, haunted house slash supernatural stories. So, yeah, um, for me, it worked on almost every level. You know, it's not a perfect film. Absolutely not a 10 out of 10 by any stretch. But... If we had to rate it, it would still get a very high rating, and it's something that will definitely be added to the rotation. I don't know that this will be an annual watch by any stretch of the imagination, considering how many new movies you know, we as podcasters have to watch. I don't know that I'll be returning to this all that often, but it's definitely something that you know I'll look back on with a smile on my face, because I did enjoy my first two watches of the film. So, yeah, recommend it. Check it out. Totally agree with all that. Definitely check it out. I think what it's been on there for maybe a week or two now. Um, yeah, something like that. Yeah, we're getting to the point where there's enough things released where not everything we even review on this show is like the week it comes out, just because there's so yeah. much. Yeah. Not not until theaters reopen. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> not until either theaters reopen or they keep 
keeping them closed that some of the movies they just decide to put on VOD. St. Maud, I'm looking in your direction. Come on, <laughs> please. <laughs> put it on VOD. Yeah, there was supposed to be a movie that came out this weekend in theaters called Come Play that I kind of wanted to check out. But um, that's only in theaters and drive-ins. There's no VOD release yet. So we'll be waiting a little bit on that one. But there's still plenty of stuff out. Netflix and Hulu are keeping us busy in the month. You know, they kept us very busy in October. That's going to bleed into November easily. So, and I'm pretty sure we already know what we're doing next week because you mentioned it earlier, Mike, and it is getting a lot of good buzz. So I'm down to do that if you are. Yeah, for sure. Why don't we let the people know what it is? Well, how many did I mention? I mentioned like quite a few of them, didn't I? Oh uh, yeah, it might have been one of the ones you mentioned actually. But yeah, um, well, I know Netflix. Netflix released a couple: uh, His House and Day of the Lord. Um, actually, you know what is is um because I know we were waiting on it for it to get its VOD release, but is it officially? out this week uh peninsula or is it later in november i think it is officially out because a friend of mine had a watch party of peninsula on facebook this weekend i don't think uh, facebook would allow it if it was a pirate so Uh, i I mean i don't know i'm not a hundred percent sure but i'm if i had to guess because of my friend's watch party i'd say it probably is officially out but don might know better than i do Nah, not really. Uh, I've kind of lost track of release dates for like the last month or so. Here, I'll take a look. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, the only ones uh, that I know for a fact are the stuff I get sent as screeners because there's usually an embargo date. Right. So, I mean, that's like the only one that I really know like for sure what dates are. Uh, May the Devil Take You 2 is on Shudder now, and I've never seen the first one, so if we end up doing that, that, I'm going to have to watch the first one as well, and we'll probably have to do like a mini review of the first one. There's no way the second one's going to be as good. Yeah, the first one is a spectacular Evil Dead ripoff. Yep. Well, that sounds amazing. The first one is an Indonesian Evil Dead ripoff that made my top five of the year. Not top ten, top five. Wow. Yeah. Dang, I might have to watch that tonight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah, it is. But yeah, there's so much on the docket. I'm sure you know. I'm I'm okay saying his house because, like I said, I've heard nothing but good things about that movie um, mm. from the few people I know that have seen it. I'd even I'd venture for that just because it'll actually allow me to check check off a country for, that I've never seen before because I've never seen an African horror film before. Oh, you should have watched. Um, or not, not. I've seen South African, but like none, none other countries. Oh, oh, okay. Do you remember that zombie movie that we did from Africa, Mike? The uh, Dead. Oh, was it The Dead? No, zombie? not the. Um, no, I know no, which no. one you're talking about. Um, oh, I know, like last one out or something like that. Last one yeah. was out. Which, yep, that was yeah. it. Yeah, I liked that movie a lot. I thought that, that was, was really cool. Yeah, but I thought that was South African though. I mean, I've it might have been. South, no, I think I, I think seen, it is. Yeah, you might be right. Yeah, I, I've seen South African, but like outside of that, I've never seen an African horror film. I hear you. I mean, I personal opinion, but I mean that's my pick. Unless you want to go, maybe the Devil Two. Either one would be fine. I don't mind. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll figure it out. I mean, yeah. we we have so many to do. I mean, so many available. Yeah, yeah. We won't make it official yet. Um. 
because what what I'll probably end up doing is watching some of these too, and then maybe getting back in contact with you guys, and then we can uh, converge on it. But uh, anyways, that's probably gonna wrap up our episode for this one. Uh, but before we get out, let's find out if there's anything new for people to listen to from us. So Venom, what do you got? Uh, honestly, I, I got nothing. Um, the only other show besides our shows that I'm still loyal to is It's Not Horror Okay, the movie commentary podcast. But unfortunately, I had a date night on the night of our last recording, so you won't hear my voice on that one. But I have a feeling you're going to hear another familiar voice on that one. But we'll get to that when we get to it. Uh, but yeah, as far as I go, nothing new from me. Main show, No More Room in Hell, episode 25, is available now. Uh, Moods was our special guest for that one. Uh, we looked at Derek's picks, which are always fun. And no exception this time, we looked at Executive Koala and um, Tokyo Zombie, a movie that I absolutely love, that I don't think gets the love that it deserves, but... Hopefully, you know, the discussion we had on the show will open some eyes. But, yeah, that's been available for a bit. Uh, we also have our Halloween commentary special that was released uh, last Friday, the day before Halloween. Um, that's going to be Mike, myself, and Derek, of course, the three main folks from No More Room in Hell, uh, looking at a commentary or recording a commentary for Hell House LLC one of my favorite new Halloween movies over the last few years. Um, so that's available on the Dark Discussions uh, network of podcasts, so check that out. And that's it from me, Mike. All right, how about you, Don? I haven't even listened to him. I have literally nothing. We need more shows. All right. Yeah, I know. It's... it's... I remember, like, what, a year or two ago, everyone would have literally, like, three, four things to say every time. Yeah, I remember when it would take, like, ten minutes for me to go through all my shows. Yeah, what was the running joke? I gained five years? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I remember somebody, I forget, I was doing a guest spot on a show, and I, I did my usual 10 to 15 minute spiel on all my shows, and I think they accused me of starting a new podcast while I was going over my podcasts. <laughs> oh, that was funny. Yeah. I've been bailable. I don't remember, but yeah. I, I just, yeah, for a yeah, guy... I think, who, I, think did, I think that one of us said that when you were on with us. Yeah, I believe it. But yeah, yeah, I think that was Yeah, I think that was It's definitely, definitely strange to go from double-digit podcast to now, what, three? So, yeah, it's very odd. I have a lot of free time. It's depressing. Um, so, yeah, well, hopefully that'll change really, really soon. But uh, that's it from my end, Mike. And Don, I guess, too. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, I, I got um, nothing else. So. Yeah, I really don't have anything else either. I know um, for anyone familiar with uh, the sidecast I do with Gary and Suzanne, um, Burning for Springwood, we're trying to put together um, an episode this week to record. So maybe that'll be coming soon. But otherwise, yeah, just fresh cuts and no more room in hell for me as well for the meantime. All right. All right. Well, with that, we're going to go ahead and get out of here. So thanks, everyone, for listening. We will catch you next time. Adios, muchachos. Nadie se escapa. El final de todo lo que pasa y fuera siempre está en volver a casa. Sí.
cuida de esos pilos, sé Pero se aguanta cuando en casa las cosas van bien Nada me asusta y fuera al revés Lo que me aterra es lo que puede encontrarme al volver Porque siempre voy a volver